you would join me in your Bibles in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9 this morning in your Bibles, Luke chapter number 9. For those of you who are just joining us today, we're continuing on a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. Here at Cloverleaf, we believe very strongly in the sufficiency and the supremacy of the Bible of God's Word. We are not embarrassed about the fact that we are going to simply preach the Bible week in and week out. We believe that the Bible is God's truth, that it is perfect, and that it is able to convert the soul and transform us down to the very depths of our being. So we simply make it a point every week to explain the Bible and expose to the view of God's people and all who come who Jesus is and what the Scripture means. Well, would you follow along as I read our text this morning? We're picking up in verse 28, Luke 9, verse 28. Follow along as I read. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. So about a week after what we talked about last week. And as he prayed, the fashion, the appearance of his countenance was altered, was changed, was different. His raiment was white and glistening, literally like a lightning strike. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed, as they were departing from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, and then let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. They kept it close and told no man in in those days any of those things which they had seen. We live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with glory. Culture that's obsessed with celebrity. There's there's a word for you that you you don't find in the Bible, but it's on our lips all the time. And you, you watch the news, you read the newspaper. There's often updates about what celebrities are doing, right? Like, I don't know who cares, but apparently somebody cares enough for, for them to, to share these things. We, in our culture, your celebrities might be sports stars, right? If you're really into sports and ESPN, it might be some guy on the Alabama football team who can throw a football or run a football or catch a football. Or it might be a music star if you're into, into music, right? That, like, man, that person is just awesome and they have so much fame and everybody likes them and looks at them. Or it might be movie stars or that tragic category of celebrities, people who are famous simply for being famous and nobody knows why they're famous, right? That's basically what a celebrity is, people who are famous for being famous. Why is it that we have a fascination with celebrities in our world? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that we're kind of obsessed with the the private lives of people who play football or act in movies or sing music or, or simply have an Instagram page? Why is that? Well, I think the reason is, in part, there is a magnetism about f- to, to fame and to glory and to adulation. We have a, a hunger for something that is transcendent, something that is bigger than we are. Think about the Olympics that just happened a few weeks ago, and people standing on the, on the stage with a national anthem playing, getting a, a medal around their neck, and the glory, right, of, of being the focus of the world, of being the best in the world. We have a hunger, a, a, a longing within us for glory, 
And the reality is, the tragic reality is, our culture has rejected transcendent meaning, right? Glory that is beyond us, glory that we, we cannot see, glory in a word that is found in God. Right? We've turned away from Christianity, we've rejected religion. But listen, there is a, a conservation of religion, if you will, right? You're, you're never going to just sort of destroy religious impulses in people. What at one time was attached to religion and to God will simply be attached somewhere else. That is why people have religious devotion to politicians. You think about, man, what, why are people so into this guy or that guy? Well, it's this, this devotion that should be on God then gets put on an individual. Why do people get obsessed over movie stars? Because we want something that's transcendent, but when we have re- rejected the transcendent, it will be replaced by the trivial. Uh, there is a hunger for glory that God has put in each person. We are made in his image. We were made to know and to reflect God for all of eternity. When we turn away from him, when we turn away from the glory of God, as Romans 1 tells us, we're going to turn to something else. We're going to turn to worship something else. When we stop worshiping God, when we stop admiring God, when we stop obsessing and admiring his glory, we'll look for it somewhere else. And our culture has replaced the transcendent with the trivial. When we do that, we take things that are meant to be secondary, we make them ultimate. We take politics, and that becomes the ultimate lens for defining reality. Everything becomes about politics. Or you take entertainment, and that becomes supreme. You take sports, you make that what you admire. All of these things, of course, have a rightful place, a secondary place, or a way-down-the-list kind of place. But when we don't admire the glory of God, we will admire something else. In a sense, the entire culture becomes keeping up with the Kardashians, right, as we try to keep up and, and be in on what's going on. Today, my goal is very simple. It is to call us away from the trivial glories of our culture to the transcendent glory of Christ. That's it. To call us away for just a minute from looking for glory here and there in sports and entertainment and politics. To to, to step away from the trivial glory of culture to the transcendent glory of Christ. And the transfiguration is just a little glimpse at the glory of Christ. Now, what is God's glory. God's glory is the expression of his character. The disciples see it, right? We see that in verse, let's see, verse 32, they saw his glory. All right, it was veiled in flesh. He's fully God, fully man. They hadn't seen this full display of his glory. But here they see it for just a brief minute, a brief passing minute. They see this expression of his character, his transcendence, his divinity. God's glory is the display of his character. It is the fame and the renown of his nature, It is the beauty of who he is. Defining God's glory is a hard task. It's like trying to define beauty. I say, okay, define for me what a car is. You're like, oh, okay, it's got four wheels, doors, a combustion engine. It takes you places. But I say, define beauty. That kind of becomes hard to define. You're like, hey, when I see it, I know what it is. The same is true with God's glory, the glory of Christ. God's glory is what makes God God. It's what sets him in a class all of his own. It is infinite greatness, and it's his immeasurable worth, In a word, God's glory is his character on display. And what we see here is the character and the nature of Jesus on display in this event that we know as the transfiguration. Trans, change, figuration, his appearance, his appearance changes. And the disciples, actually just three of them, Peter, James, and John, see that glory. So I want to just invite you to come away for just a minute from the trivial glories of culture, from the distractions of the day, Let's go up the mountain with these disciples and let's catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And here's my my prayer this morning is what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. As we see this, we'll be transformed by it. Because listen, we will imitate what we admire. We will become what we worship. 
So let's delight in the glory of Christ. I want to walk through this in three scenes this morning. The first scene here is we see Jesus' glory disclosed. His glory disclosed. Look at verse 28. Look back in your Bibles. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to be referring to them. I want you to see that what I'm saying this morning is not merely my opinion, but it is the eternal truth of God's word, that everything we're going to say today is grounded in this text. So verse 28, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. Now, one of the other Gospels, Mark says it's six days later. Luke says it's about eight days later. kind of depends if you're counting the day that, that you're on and the day that it's going to happen, right? So you say, hey, I'm going to do this in three days from now. Well, do you mean you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Or do you mean Sunday, Monday, Tuesday? Or are you counting just, not counting Sunday, but you're counting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you mean Thursday? Depends on how you count. Uh, the number eight is kind of important for Luke. He likes eight. He uses that a lot. Here's the point, it's a week later, okay, it's a week later, whether six days or a week later or eight days, we mean the same thing. Jesus takes Peter and John and James and he goes into a mountain to pray, okay, as verse 28 tells us. He's been in Caesarea Philippi, which is right at the foot of Mount Hermon in in northern Israel. It's the tallest mountain in Israel, about 9,000 feet high. That fits the description we have in the other Gospels that it was a very high mountain. So I can just picture Jesus takes these three guys and they hike all day. Right, going up from, from Banyas, from, from Caesarea Philippi, up, in, up a 9,000-foot mountain. It's hard work. It's exhausting. You're now at high altitude. The disciples are wiped out. They're up there. Jesus begins to pray. He liked to pray at night, by the way, so possible that it's now nighttime as this begins to happen. Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us that this happens while Jesus is praying. Luke has got an emphasis on prayer, on the fact that Jesus, as the perfect man, lived his life in dependence on his Father. Prayer often precedes these displays of his revelation and of his glory. Now, notice verse 29. As he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. There's this this amazing display now of the glory of Jesus. He does something unique that he does nowhere else in his earthly ministry. He gives people, he gives humans a, a little glimpse of his divine nature. In the state of Jesus' humiliation during his time on earth, Jesus veiled his glory, right? He, he's, he's truly man, he's truly God, two natures in one divine person, right? One, he, he's not just appearing human, he really is human, and he's not just partially God, it's not like he gave up part of his divinity, but fully God, fully man, and he looks just like any other ordinary guy walking around. There's no beauty, there's no form nor comeliness that when we shall see him, that we should delight in him. He pulls back the veil here for just an instant for the disciples to, to see his divine majesty and his glory. No, he doesn't do this for everyone, just this, the three inner circles. Now, why just these three guys? Old Testament says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything's established. They would be witnesses of this great event. And verse, 20, or verse 36 says they wouldn't tell anyone until later. Mark tells us the reason. Jesus says don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. We've got to go through suffering and then there's glory. These three guys would be, a wit- be witnesses of this incredible event. John would later write. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, verse 14. We saw his glory. Peter would later write in 2 Peter 1, We saw his glory on the mountain. We heard the voice saying, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. Later on, these men would bear witness and reflect on this fact. But as Jesus is praying, as he's in the presence of his Father, his appearance changes. He begins to reflect the glory of his Father. I think there's a deliberate allusion here to what happens in the Old Testament. Back in Exodus 34, and you can jot this reference down, verses 29 to 35, Moses, like Jesus, ascends a mountain. It's Mount Sinai in that case. Moses, like Jesus, communes with God, and Moses, like Jesus, 
begins to have his face change and he begins to glow. He comes down off the mountain, he's literally glowing, and the people are like, that's terrifying. Put a veil on your face. That was referenced, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 3 that Michael read for us earlier. This parallels Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. This is connecting Jesus to that event. Jesus is saying, I'm like Moses, but I'm better than Moses. I'm greater than Moses. Communion with the Father exposes his glorious divinity. So notice the description here in verse 29. The fashion of his countenance, that is the, the form, the appearance of his face. It was different. Jesus didn't look the same. Matthew tells us that his face was shining like the sun. Like, that would be pretty terrifying if I'm up here preaching and I suddenly just start glowing like the sun. Probably all of you would be like, oh, we're out of here. This is a weird place. We're gone. Right? Luke says that his, his garments were glistening, literally like a lightning flash. Just an incredible event. Mark says that his clothes were white like no human could make them. Like, this is not just ordinary washing machine. This is not just bleach. But this is a display of divine glory. Everything about this is shouting divinity. This is shouting divine presence. This is shouting the glory of God. It's not just a mere human being who's an awesome guy. This is someone who is God in the flesh. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Now, you don't have to be super good at math, but if I say that God is infinite, okay, God the Father is infinite, and Jesus is the exact representation, exactly like the Father, he too must be infinite. He too must be eternal. He too must be like the Father in every way. That's why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I'm just like my dad, he is saying. There's not one whit of difference in the character or in the, in, in, in the attributes. He, is, he shares the attributes with the Father. He is co-equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. He is truly God from eternity past. Distinct person, yes. It's not that Jesus is just like another form of the Father. No, it's a distinct person. Otherwise, how can he be praying to the Father, right? Otherwise, he's talking to himself. He's praying to the Father. Distinct person, but one God. Just incredible. We are going down into the deep end of the pool here this morning, right? This is like you jumped off the high dive and you're in the 12-foot deep. Like This is incredible what the disciples are seeing, and we're invited. We're getting a, a front row seat that Luke is saying, pull up a chair, watch and see what they saw. It's a disclosure of his glory, a disclosure, if you will, of his past glory. In John 17, Jesus prays something interesting. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had from before the foundation of the world. This is glory that Jesus has had from eternity past and that he retained even in the state of his humiliation. He did not stop being God. Rather, he took on the form of a servant, uh, Philippians 2. And he's pulling the veil back for the disciples. This is not Jesus putting on a mask. This is Jesus pulling back the veil pulling back the curtain for them to see who he is. But in the context, this is also a disclosure of future glory. He's disclosing, he's revealing, yeah, this is who I am from eternity past, but this is also who I'm going to be. Look back at the end of last week's passage, verses 26 and 27. Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. He's talking about the glory that's coming after the cross. He's saying, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be resurrected, and I'm going to achieve and receive incredible glory. Look at verse 26. Whoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Father's glory, that's implied, and and of the holy angels' glory. So he's saying, I'm coming back one day in glory, the second coming. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God and the other gospel accounts add in glory. 
Jesus is saying one day the kingdom will be fully established on this earth. One day I will return and reign as the king. That's what they were confused about. Like, hey, you're the Messiah. You're supposed to rule. But now you're talking about a cross. You're talking about suffering. What's the deal? And Jesus is saying, yes, I'm going to the cross. That is the Father's plan. But after the cross comes the crown. After suffering comes glory. And here's a glimpse of what is to be. I really think that's the accent here in the transfiguration. Not so much Jesus simply saying, Past glory, but he's saying future glory. This is what awaits me and all those who are my people is this kind of glory for all eternity. Revelation 1, the passage that Ryan opened the service with, talked about Jesus having a description very similar to this. Feet like fire, raiment that is shining white. That is who he is in his glory, and one day he's coming back. That's what this is saying. This is saying future glory, future kingdom. God has highly exalted him. This is a display of the glory. This is a disclosure of the glory of Christ. The Jesus that we worship this morning, he is not an ordinary man. He's not just a historic figure from someone in the past who we really admire. It's not like, oh man, we really admire George Washington. No, he is the glory of God. He is the full expression of who God is. That means that worship matters. It means that how we worship matters. It means that there's nothing more important for us in our lives than to see and savor and delight in who Jesus is. Just think about this, how awesome and majestic our Savior is. What am I going to do with that? I need something practical. Here's the practical. Behold your God. Just gaze upon Him, marvel at Him, wonder at Him, worship Him. Now, here's where I think the rubber did meet the road for the disciples. This is done in part for the disciples' benefit. They're going to go through the dark days of Gethsemane and Calvary. And to know that there's a promise of future glory, they too would face persecution. This is a down payment, a promise, a glimpse of what would come in the future. Think about our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Also, by the way, in Burma, uh, who are facing intense persecution and throughout the world. What makes you be willing to lay down your life for Christ? Right? What makes you say, I, you know, I am willing to die rather than be unfaithful? The only thing that, 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 that really gives that a, makes it a logical decision is a belief in the reality that future glory is coming. Right? It's kind of silly to lay your life down for a lie, to lay down your life for something that doesn't matter. But if there is future glory, and if this is our hope and where we will be one day, it makes total sense to say, of course I'll suffer for Christ now and have glory for all eternity. That's the logic of this, calling us to real sacrifice. Here's the tragedy, as many have pointed out this week. Christians in Afghanistan and other parts of the world are willing to put their lives on the line to be faithful to Christ. And so many of us Something better comes up Sunday morning, we can't be bothered to go on a fishing trip or family or I'm feeling a little tired or a little whatever. Here's Christians in the other part of the world that are saying we are so compelled by the promise of future glory, we're willing to die. And we say, oh, I'm more compelled by the promises of glory now, but I'm not even willing to go to church. What a tragedy. So this has real implications for our life, this display, this disclosure of Jesus' glory. But let's move into the next scene. That first scene, the, his glory disclosed, his glory revealed, his glory put on full display. Notice verse 30 now. We come into our next scene. His glory is now discussed. Kind of gives us more meaning to it. Something unusual happens. Behold, there talks with him two men. 
Okay, in perfect tense, they were talking. This is an ongoing conversation. This is not just a quick, hey, Jesus, what's up? And then they're out of there. But no, this is an ongoing conversation. And the two men were Moses and Elijah, verse 31. They appeared in glory, right? They've already passed into glory. And they were speaking. They kept on talking about his decease, literally his departure, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So here's Moses and Elijah. These are great Old Testament saints. These are the great titans of the Jewish faith. This is like the the George Washington and the Abraham Lincoln of uh, of Israel's history. These are the great men that they would look at and be like, hey, these are the people that we would uh, would admire or we would love to sit down and just hang out with. Think about some of those sort of thought experiments. You're like, man, what would happen if this person sat down, like if George Washington sat down with the current president, like what would he say And, and these kinds of things. Here it's literally happening, happening, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, talking and having a conversation. Like, man, to be the fly on the wall at something like that, in a conversation like that. Together, Moses and Elijah represent the entirety of the Old Testament. Okay, now I think they're literally there, but think about what they represent. Moses was the great lawgiver. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch. He's the, the human penman that God used to give the law. And then Elijah is really the first of the great prophets, where you get Elijah, and then Elisha comes after him, and then you get the later writing prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and and these other men who who write scripture. Jewish shorthanded Jesus' day to refer to the Old Testament were the law and the prophets, right? That that was just a way of saying the law and the prophets. Now there's other stuff, the Psalms, the writings, the Ketuvim, but but this is shorthand to say the entirety of the Old Testament, these two men who stand as witnesses of the entirety of everything that was written before this. This is to say this, Moses and Elijah were looking forward to the day of Christ. Jesus would say elsewhere, hey, Abraham, rejoice to see my day, right? He would say, you're you're living in the time that a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the fulfillment, the culmination of all the promises of God. The The united presence of Moses and Elijah say this, Hey, everything that the sacrifices foreshadowed, everything that the tabernacle anticipated is here in Jesus Christ, right? Here's Moses, the one who God used to build the tabernacle. Here's Jesus, who is the presence of God among his people. Elijah, the one who declared the word of God. Here's Jesus, who is the ultimate and final prophet. You think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a pretty incredible narrative. Man, I would have loved to have been there when the Red Sea split. Wouldn't that be awesome? Or when the, the smoke that fills the tabernacle, fills the temple, and God's presence being, vi- presence being visible. Or the, the, the Shekinah glory, uh, the pillar of cloud, or the pillar of fire leading God's people through the wilderness. That'd be pretty awesome to be there at, at Mount Carmel when fire comes down from heaven and burns the sacrifice up. That would be sweet. That would be amazing to be there. Think about the displays of God's glory in the Old Testament where God comes crashing in. It feeds his people with manna from heaven and and, and, and just these incredible displays of his power over and over again. Yet I think what Job said describes the glory of the Old Testament. These are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him. Right In the creation, we see something of the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, but it's like a whisper. The creation is like a whisper of, there's a God out there, and there's glory out there, and there's a creator who has made everything. The Old Testament is like God speaking in a plain voice. Hey, the promises and the predictions and the sacrifices all pointing to the coming Messiah. But Jesus coming is the shout of who God is. And here he is, the glory of God personified in your midst. The the temple of God in your midst. 
The, the final sacrifice, the final tabernacle, the true Israel, the true David, the one who is better than everything the Old Testament anticipated, it's Christ. It's Jesus. That's what this says. He is the theme of Scripture. Compared to Jesus, the promises of the Old Testament are like the first rays of light piercing the eastern sky. But Jesus is the noonday sun. They're like the distant echo of an orchestra. But Jesus is the orchestra. He is the music. It's like the first breeze indicating that fall is coming. I'm looking forward to fall, right? Like sometime about a month from now, hopefully, we begin to feel like, ah, it's cooling off. Humidity's dropping. Jesus is the new season in its glory. It means all of Scripture ultimately points to Jesus, which means when you read the Bible, don't just simply read the Bible looking for self-help. Don't simply read the Bible looking for good morals. Don't simply read the Bible looking for something to support like what you want to do. Read the Bible looking for the glory of Christ, looking for the glory of God, looking for the majesty of who he is. The primary message of Scripture is not you, it's God. It's not me, it's Jesus. It's a story about how the triune God glorifies himself by saving sinners through the work of Jesus alone. So what Moses and Elijah anticipated, Jesus fulfilled. Look at verse 31. So here they are, they appear in glory, Moses and Elijah, hanging out with Jesus, these great Old Testament saints who are here on the mountaintop. And notice what they're talking about. Hey, we've got, they appear in glory, Jesus appearing in glory. You'd think they'd be talking about the kingdom and the millennium and, and, and heaven. And they spoke of his decease. Hey, isn't that kind of weird in a, in a passage that's talking about the divinity and the glory and the majesty and the power of Jesus to talk about how he would die? By the way, the word there is the word exodus. That's literally the Greek word. They're talking about his exodus. So here's the guy who literally led the exodus talking to Jesus about the new and the better exodus. Just as Moses led his people out of Egypt, Jesus will lead his people out of sin. He himself will depart from life through his death, and through his death will pass through into life. What they anticipated, Jesus fulfilled. The, the, the decease which he should, notice that word accomplish. Literally the word fulfill. Not just what would happen. Right? Oh, yeah, this will happen. just kind of happens. No, the fulfillment of a plan. I right? talked about this last week. This must happen. This is what God predicted and what God planned from eternity. He's going to come and fulfill everything the, the Old Testament anticipated. He brings about a new exodus. He establishes a new covenant. Uh, so we read 2 Corinthians 3 earlier in our service, comparing, hey, if the glory of the Old Testament was amazing, and it was, how much greater is the glory of the New Covenant? Okay, the Old Covenant that God gives through Moses with the, the commandments, the laws, the sacrifices, worship, amazing, God dwelling in the midst of his people, anticipating Christ. The New Covenant, God writes his law on our hearts. The Old Covenant, God dwells in the midst of his people in the tabernacle or the temple. In the New Covenant, he dwells in our hearts by his Spirit. We have the new and the better, and Jesus fulfills it through his death. The cross of Jesus Christ is the blazing center of the glory of God. It's at the cross. You say, well, I want to see what God is like. Look at the cross. You see a God who is so loving that he sends his only son to die for sinners. Yet you see a God who is so just that he will not let sin just be overlooked. You see a God who is perfectly just, where every demand of law is satisfied through what his son does. And a God who is powerful, who raises his son from the dead after three days. It is the display of God's glory. There is so much of God's glory that we would never understand or appreciate without the reality of sin and the redemption of the cross. This is incredible, isn't it? This display of divine glory. Does this not stir your heart and make you stand and wonder his glory being the glory of the cross? 
So the Old Testament anticipates Jesus fulfills it, but now notice how Peter responds. Poor old Peter, right? He gets all of these things that he says recorded. Thankfully, you know, we don't have people following us around writing down all the dumb stuff that we say. But notice here's Peter. Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, um, literally burdened with sleep. You think about it. They spent all day climbing a mountain. It's high altitude, and it's nighttime. Hey, they take a quick nap, and then you wake up from your nap, and Jesus now is blazing like the sun. That would scare the daylights out of me, pardon the pun, right? That's just terrifying. His garments like lightning strikes, this display of divinity, Moses and Elijah being there, this conversation that you get to listen in on. So they're rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, just waking up. And, you know, when you get woken up in the middle of the night, I'm kind of experiencing that a little bit more with Timothy. You're, you're like, you're, you're not coherent, right? Some of you all aren't coherent until you have like eight cups of coffee. Can I get a witness, right? Uh, they're waking up. There's no, there's no espresso bar up there on top of Mount Hermon. So they're just waking up and they're, they're, they're bewildered. They're confused. And Peter blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind. Look at what he says. Okay, they see the glory, Jesus' glory. And the two men that stood with him, and it came to pass as they departed from him. So now Moses and Elijah begin departing. The tense here is not that they just sort of disappeared, like, oh, vision over. But they're, they're, they're maybe ascending back to heaven. They begin to depart. They begin to leave. And for Peter, he's thinking, man, this is an awesome moment. You ever want to just sort of freeze a moment of time where you're just like, okay, right here, just stop, let's freeze, let's hang on to this moment while we have it. It's you know, Christmas morning, and you want you know, families there, everybody's together, and you're like, let's just, let's just freeze this moment and make this last a little bit longer. I think that's what Peter's wanting to do. It's something that's temporary, wanting to make it permanent. Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Yeah, this is a special thing. This is beautiful for him to be able to be a part of it. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's make three tents, three shelters. Let's sort of, hey, let's set this up. Let's make this permanent. Let's set up a shrine right here. Let's take this temporary vision and make it sort of permanent so we can just enjoy this glory. See, Peter has forgotten what Jesus just said to him back in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Jesus must die. He must go to the cross. There must be suffering. And Peter's like, no, I want to sort of freeze the moment of time in glory and have the glory now without the cross. I think Peter means well. He's saying this is special. Let's make it last. But he's misguided. He's also mistaken in another way. Notice that he's sort of treating Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as equals. Hey, Moses, let's let's give Moses credit. Moses is one of the greatest figures in human history. Elijah, one of the great figures in in, in Israel's history. But compared to Jesus, they're they're not three equals that you're going to give them all the same little... No, Jesus is the one who's to be supreme. There's something else going on here. That word tabernacles can mean booths. Remember the, the, the festival of booths that they held in the Old Testament, the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles? It was a commemoration of how God led his people out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness. And so every year God said, there's going to be a time where you're going to come back and you're going to commemorate how I delivered you out of Egypt. And everybody's going to make a little, you're going to make a little, a little booth out of branches on the roof of your house. You're going to camp out for a week just to, just to recall how Israel camped out for those 40 years and God provided for them. In Zechariah, there's a prediction that in the days of Messiah, they will once again celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And perhaps Peter is saying, hey, let's do that now. Let's, kind of, let's kick off the millennial kingdom now. Let's have the, the, the kingdom and the reigning and the glory. Let's have it now. I, I think that's the sense in which Peter misunderstands this display, this discussion of God's glory. Let's all hang out for a long time. It's easy to be really hard on Peter, Right? says he didn't know what he was saying. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's waking up from the middle of a nap. 
He's in God's, the, the, the presence of God's glory. You know what you should do when you're in the presence of God's glory? Shut up and get on your face. Right? John, uh, revelation that, that, that Ryan read for us, when John saw the glory of Jesus, I fell down at his feet as a dead man. There's sort of an, God's glory. I'm just going to admire. I'm just going to worship. In the Old Testament, when Daniel got a vision of the ancient of days and of the Son of Man, he fell down as a dead man. When Jacob encountered God at Bethel, he says, I am in the house of God. There was an attitude of reverence and worship. When Isaiah stood in the presence of God and heard the cherubim and the seraphim saying, holy, 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 he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. There was an evaluation of his own heart as he saw, here's God's glory, here's my heart. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The standard, the standard against which we are measured is not simply are you going to be moral, are you moral, were you better than other people, were you in the 51st percentile of just sort of being a nice person. Beloved, the standard against which all of us will be measured on Judgment Day is God's glory. Not just an arbitrary standard, but God himself. And that's why we say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is any defection or want of conformity to who God is. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody lived up to that? The answer is no. You see, God's glory, this display of who Jesus is, this display of God's holiness and his righteousness, his perfection and his love, it ought to leave us in a place of, well, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. Woe is me. That ought to be our response. Our response shouldn't be, hey, I've got a great idea, Jesus. My response is, I've got no hope. You're my, my only hope, and I, I love you, and I worship you. I wonder if we were to narrate our reactions to God, what would be said, right? So it's, Peter, it's sort of, he didn't know what he was saying, right? He's bewildered. He's overwhelmed. Maybe, you know, we, we get to see the glory of God every time we open the Bible. Yet, what's your reaction? Are you bored? Would it be said that if, if there were to be a narration of how you responded to the glory of God, that, well, the members of Cloverleaf Baptist Church saw the glory of God, and they were bored by it? Or the members of Cloverleaf Baptist Church had an opportunity to see the glory of God, but they chose rather to just watch TV. Or they, were, they would rather go to a, a, a baseball game or go fishing or just, just hang out with their family rather than see the glory of Christ. Would it be said they were interested? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. They were bored or they worshipped. Right, what should be said of your heart this morning when, when you see the glory of God on the pages of Scripture? It's just interesting. It's just trivia. It's just sort of ah, theological information or, mm, no, that's interesting history. Or do you see the glory of God and, and are you moved by it to a place of worship? See God's glory. We see Jesus' glory here. We see it disclosed, revealed, put on display. We see Jesus' glory discussed by Moses and Elijah and Peter as they, they try to grapple with what they're seeing. But now we get God who speaks up and we see Jesus' glory declared. Now God the Father is going to come and tell us who Jesus is. We're, getting a, we're going to get a full expression of his glory. Listen, the glory of, of Jesus Christ is not going to be primarily what is seen, but what is heard, right? That's how God, remember back in Exodus 34, when Moses sees the glory of God, he says, show me, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God descends onto to Mount Sinai, and Moses does see the hinder parts of God's glory, but primarily, what does he get? He gets a declaration. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. 
right? He gets a declaration of who God is. We get the same thing. We get a declaration of who God is, who Jesus is on the pages of Scripture. So notice how Jesus' glory is declared. And while he thus spake, so Peter, the words are still coming out of his mouth. There came a cloud and overshadowed them. Oh, there are high altitudes, some clouds, some storms rolling in. This is not any ordinary cloud. This is the Shekinah glory. Now, what do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, when God meets with his people in the Exodus, he shrouds himself in cloud, right? Because if we get a vision of the glory of God without anything between us and the glory of God, we would be annihilated. So God, in his kindness, shrouds himself in a cloud. He leads them through the the wilderness with a pillar of cloud. Wherever it goes, they follow him. This pillar of cloud, now it looked like a pillar of fire at night. It's the same thing, that the light shining through the cloud at night. When the, when the tabernacle is built and God says, I'm going to dwell among my people in this tent, there is a cloud that fills the tabernacle when it's dedicated at the end of Exodus. Later on, when Solomon builds the temple, a more permanent place for God's presence to be displayed, there is a cloud that fills the house so great that he says that the Levites, the priests, couldn't even enter the house. Right? When God's people are gathered in Acts chapter 2 and they become the new covenant temple of God, it says that there is a, a noise of wind that fills the house and, and tongues of fire that appear on everybody's head. So this idea of fire, of cloud, coming together, displaying to say that God is here. When Jesus ascends to heaven, it says that he was caught up in a cloud. And when he returns, he's going to return with a shout of an archangel, with the trump of God. He's going to return with clouds. The clouds being a display of God's glory. Now, not every cumulus cloud that floats by out there is God's presence, but this is the unique Shekinah glory of God. This is God the Father who is showing up in an incredible way. This is unfathomable what is, what is occurring here. So a cloud came and it overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. Now, who's the they who are entering into the cloud? The they can be referring a couple of different things. Okay, so the three disciples, they feared as they, that is Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, enter the cloud. And I say that because the next verse is they heard a voice coming out of the cloud, which means that the disciples are outside of the cloud. So this cloud comes, and it shrouds around Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They no longer can see Jesus. They're like, hey, what's going on here? They're absolutely terrified. This is a display of not just the glory of the Son, but now the glory of the Father showing up. And they can't see Jesus, they can't see Moses, they can't see Elijah. They're outside of the cloud. This is terrifying. It says they were afraid. That's the natural response of men in the presence of God. They're like, hey, let's throw a big rock concert. No, 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 no. they were fearful as God's presence arrived. And there came a voice, verse 35, out of the cloud. Again, this takes us back to the book of Exodus, right? This cloud comes down on Mount Sinai, and there's thunderings, and there's lightnings, and God says, don't touch the mountain. And then God speaks later on in Deuteronomy when God gives a commentary on it. He says, on that day you saw no form, but you heard what? A voice. Our God is a God who speaks. This happened at the baptism of Jesus. As he's being baptized, the Spirit descends like a dove, and then the Father speaks, you are my beloved Son. Now notice this, he doesn't say, you are my beloved son here in this one. He says, this is my beloved son. The baptism was the father's affirmation of the son for the son. Here, this is the father's affirmation of the son for the disciples. This is for them to understand. This Jesus that you've confessed, who is the Messiah, who is the one who's going to go to the cross, who's the suffering servant, he's my son. He's more than just a human Messiah. He's the divine son of God. This is my son. Peter had spoken of Elijah, Moses, and Jesus as equals, and the Father comes along, no, Peter. He's not just their equal. 
He is their creator. This is my son. He's transcendent. He is supreme. He is exclusive. He doesn't demand a booth next to the other religious luminaries as an equal. It's not like there's going to be a fair and they're going to have, we're going to have Muhammad and Buddha and then here's Jesus and Moses and Elijah. No, Jesus is supreme over all. He's in a class all of his own. He doesn't get a booth on Mount Hermon next to other luminaries. He stands as God alone ruling from the throne of heaven. There's none like the unique son of God. Now Luke calls him the, the beloved. Actually, the word here is the chosen one, the one who God selected This takes us back to Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, mine elect in whom I delight. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah who also just happens to be God's eternal son. When Luke talks about Jesus being the chosen and beloved son of God, John would put it this way. He is the unique, the monogenes, the only begotten. For God so loved the world that he sent his, what? Only begotten son. Hey, God adopts other kids into his family. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into his family. But Jesus stands alone as the one who is uniquely the Father's Son from all eternity. The doctrine of the Trinity is a precious doctrine, a core doctrine of the Christian faith. Here's what it says. We say God is love. That means God is love in and of himself. Go back 10 trillion years ago before there was any universe or any time or anything. What was God? God was love. You say, well, if there's going to be love, that means there needs to be an object of the love. How can, you, how can you be love if there's no one to love? Unless, of course, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit exists from all eternity. From eternity past, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and they love the Spirit in this beautiful harmony of love. It is who God is in himself. And then that love spills over, and God creates the world, and we become objects of his love through faith in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely incredible. We're seeing the glory of Christ. This is more than just Jesus meek and mild and Jesus, look, he's doing miracles and Jesus, he's pretty awesome. (laughs) We're getting into stuff that I can't wrap my mind around. If anybody out there has got the Trinity figured out, you're probably a heretic, right? Like that's, if we get this to where it all sort of adds up and makes sense to us, we've missed some core aspect of Christian truth. Just incredible. This is my beloved son. This is my chosen son. The glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus being declared, the, 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 the pillar of this is that he is God's unique son. Go over with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I, I referenced this earlier, but I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 1. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But notice how it begins. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. God who had sundry times... And in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. So it starts off saying God in the past, he he spoke to us through prophets, through people like Moses, through people like Elijah, through people like Isaiah. That's how he did it in the past. Past God spoke through prophets, verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So in the past, he spoke by prophets, but now he's speaking by son. He's he's not just saying, I'm going to send a message to someone, but the message is actually going to be my son. He's going to be the message and the messenger. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
But notice that contrast. He spoke by prophets, but now he's speaking by his son. Back to Luke 9. This is my beloved son. What does he say next? Hear him. That's what the writer of Hebrews is commenting on. If Jesus is God's son, then it means he speaks with the authority of God, right? It means that he is the official spokesman of God. There's another reference going on here. Think about all the parallels with Moses. Back in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, God, through Moses, says, one day I'm going to raise up a prophet like unto Moses. There's going to be another prophet who's going to come who's going to be like Moses as in being authoritative, as of being this one who's going to sort of reconstitute Israel. And he says, him shall ye hear. And if anyone does not hear him, he'll be cut off from his people. This is God the Father saying, not only is Jesus my beloved son, but he is my authoritative spokesman. He's the prophet like Moses. He's the one who speaks with authority. Jesus doesn't come along making suggestions. He doesn't come along giving advice. He comes along issuing commands, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's not just a suggestion of like, hey, one of the ways to heaven is through Jesus. No, it's a command to say he's the only way. And listen, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, you've not been born again, has there ever been a time in your life that you've turned from your sin to trust in Christ? It's not a suggestion. Your eternity is at stake. Whether you're going to spend eternity in hell or in heaven, your eternity is at stake depending on what you do with Jesus. He speaks authoritatively. But that doesn't just stop with conversion, right? He's speaking this to the disciples. This is my beloved. Hear him. This is a present tense. Be hearing him. Keep listening to him. Not just, okay, I listen to his voice one time, but my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life. Christian, do you listen to and heed the voice of Christ in your life? Not just hear it like audibly, but the the sense of hearing is sort of leaning forward. You're like, I'm going to listen and I want to do what he says. Hear him. Hear him. Does he have authority in your life? Do you really honor the authority of Jesus in every area of your life? Say, well, yeah, I'm I'm in church on Sunday and, you know, like I, I believe the Bible is God's word and I try to live a moral life. Hey, does Jesus reign supreme in your marriage? Right? Or do you reign supreme? I would say 99% of marriage problems come when we try to be supreme, right? It's me versus her, her versus me. Who's going to be in charge? I want to do this. She wants to do that. I'm going to be selfish and prideful. Or are you going to say, now Jesus reigns in my marriage. Right? We're going to do what Jesus wants. We're both going to submit to Jesus. Do you honor Jesus? Does Jesus reign supreme in your finances? Right? Or is it just your, 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 your whims, your impulses? I'm going to buy this, buy that, and I'm going to rack up all this debt. Or do you say, I'm going to have Jesus rule in my finances. I'm going to learn to exercise self-restraint so that I can glorify him with the finances that he has given me. What about your time, your schedule? Does your schedule reflect the supremacy of Jesus? Say, listen, I've got to go work at least 40 hours this week. Okay, does Jesus reign supreme in your work? Do you do your work to the glory of God? The ordinary stuff of life. I'm not saying go out and become a monk and just sit there and like read the Bible all day. I mean the ordinary stuff of clocking in and clocking out and raising your kids and, 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 and watching the football game. And all of those things, are they being done to the glory of Christ? By the way, they can be done to the glory of Christ, whether you eat or drink. Do all to the glory of Christ. Are they being done to the glory of Christ? Does he reign supreme? In everything about you, in your political viewpoints, in your worldview, in your sexuality, in your healthcare decisions, there is no sphere of life over which Jesus does not reign. There is no area of human existence where his word does not speak. 
So where do you need to step back and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to his voice rather than listening to my own, rather than listening to the voice of culture. We're constantly being catechized by the culture around us, telling us what we should do, what we should think. Would we rather do that or hear Christ? But notice verse 36. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. I think this is pretty amazing. This is an amazing testament of how the scripture fits. Moses, Elijah, they fade off the scenes, and now Jesus stands center stage. They'd all prepared the way, now it's all about Jesus. And we live in the new covenant where it's all about Jesus. This is to say this, that Jesus is the Father's supreme revelation. I mentioned earlier, he reveals himself in creation. We, he reveals himself through natural law in our consciences, this, this sense of right and wrong that he's given to each one of us. But he reveals himself most clearly in the person of Christ. Jump over with me to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I noted this earlier, but I want, to, I want us to see this. 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's Peter, one of the guys who was actually there. He's around 30 years later. He's getting ready to face his own demise, his own death, his own departure, his own exodus from this world. And he's leaving this important letter to, to Christians who are, are facing persecution, facing false teaching. They're facing deception on every hand, heresy around every corner. And notice what he says in chapter 1 and verse 16. We have not f- followed cunningly devised fables when we made unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, saying, guys, listen, we didn't make this story up. Why on earth would we make up a story that we then get killed and tortured for? Right? It doesn't make any sense. This is not just a fable. This is not just a myth. He says, we saw this. This is history. For he received from God, verse 17, from God the Father, honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hey, he's referencing the event that we just studied. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So here, here's Peter saying, we were there. We saw the whole thing. We had this incredible experience. But then he says something really surprising. We have also, okay, in addition to that, in a different way than that, a more sure word of prophecy. Wherein do you do well that you take heed? This is my beloved son. Hear him. Take heed. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. He's saying we've got something that's even more sure than what we even heard and what we heard with our own ears and saw with our own eyes. You say, what is it? Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Okay, nobody just came up with the Bible on their own. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is astounding. Here's Peter saying, we saw his glory on the mountain. We heard the voice. And you've got something that's just as good. You've got the word of God. The word of God is not just a book of history. It is a display of God's glory. And that is precisely what 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 is referencing Paul's been contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, Old Covenant that's written down, the New Covenant that's come in Christ. In the next chapter, he talks about how how it's preached and proclaimed. And he says, We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are to look upon and gaze upon the glory of Christ in the pages of Scripture to see Jesus. The Scripture is like a window through which we look. Now, it is a perfect window. It is an inerrant window. But the point of a window is not the window, it is what you see through the window. 
right? We look through the window, and what are we to see? We're to see the glory, the majesty of God. That's what we should be looking for when we read the Bible, is to see God in such a way that we are transformed, that we begin to admire it. And notice, just by gazing upon that glory, verse 18, we're changed, we're transformed. Metamorphous is the word. We are metamorphosed into the same image. We are made more like Jesus Christ as we see him, as we savor him, as we admire him, as we love him. Here's why. We do what we do because we love what we love. And if I love the character of Christ, I will begin to do the character of Christ. You see how that works? We do what we do because we love what we love. We become what we worship. We imitate what we admire. So next time you read the Bible, marvel at the infinite wisdom of the one who designed DNA and orchestrates every star in the heavens. Marvel at the one who with his omnipotent power spoke the world into existence and sustains all life. Marvel at the one who had love that was so great that he went to the cross for sinners. Marvel at the glory of that one. And one day we will see his glory face to face when we see him. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day Jesus is coming back. And we'll see his glory unveiled and every wrong will be righted, every sin will be judged, and every saint will be rescued. What the disciples glimpse for a moment, we will gaze upon for all eternity. Okay, they saw it just for a moment. We'll see it for all eternity. But before we get there, we've got to walk through suffering. We've got to walk through the nasty now and now. But it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. Father, may we gaze upon the glory of Christ, be transformed into the same image. Help us as we...